0: Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Faber podcast for April 2012. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Channel 4 News' international editor, Lindsay Hilsom. As foreign correspondent, Lindsay has covered many of the major conflicts of the past two decades, including the genocide in Rwanda, the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan and Kosovo, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Recognition for her work has come in the form of journalism awards too numerous to list here. Until now, though, she hadn't published a book. She's remedied that in magisterial fashion with Sandstorm, an account of Libya's revolution of 2011, which sets those eight turbulent months in the context of the forty-two years that Libyans endured under Colonel Gaddafi. We in the West had become accustomed to thinking of the guide, as he styled himself, as a volatile joker in the pack of Middle Eastern leaders, but Sandstorm is a chilling reminder that for Libyans he remained a terrifying figure almost to the last. What is also immensely valuable in the book are the personal stories of those who suffered under and then rose up against Gaddafi from all walks of life – Islamists, professionals, students, former political prisoners and conscripts. In this interview, we talk about some of the features of Gaddafi's regime, and also discuss some of those personal stories. I began, though, by asking Lindsay if she remembered when she realised that the revolution in Libya was not going to be a short-lived story, but one which was going to absorb her attention for many months.
1: I think that when I first got into Libya, which was um, February 23rd, 2011, I really didn't know what was going to happen, because it was just, it was so surprising. Tunisia had had its revolution Egypt had had a revolution which was sort of a military coup but Libya was so closed down we had no idea what would happen and it was unthinkable that Gaddafi might fall after 42 years and his secret police, his spies were everywhere and yet in the east it happened within a week, it just went. He was a paper tiger, it just crumbled and so after that I really didn't feel that I could predict what would happen when it would happen how long it would take the moment when I felt that it was a story which I wanted to tell and to stay with was when I met relatives of the victims of the Abu Salim prison massacre because this was a prison massacre which took place in 1996 in which 1,270 men were murdered and I had never heard of it And I had asked, I realized that this was important. Somebody told me about it. And that was why people hated Gaddafi so much. And so I asked if I could um, meet a couple of the relatives of the victims. So we went along to this house. And instead of a couple of the relatives, there was a room full of people. And each of them was holding up a photograph of their brother, husband, son, father, who had been murdered in the prison. And they were just sitting around there. And as I walked into that room, which was completely silent and saw all the pictures of these people who had been killed by Gaddafi, that was when I knew that this was a story that I wasn't going to be able to let go of.
0: And the particular cruelty was that not only had these men been killed, but their families hadn't been told for years and they'd been sustained in this this terrible false hope.
1: That was absolutely horrific. I asked if they would... Find two people to come up and tell me their stories because I couldn't listen to everybody's story, and so they selected a man and a woman, and the man came up and sat down, and we started to interview him and he he what he said to me was that for fourteen years he had got traveled the six hundred miles to Tripoli to the prison to see his brother in law with his sister and his uh and the brother in law's children, and they had taken food and clothes and the other toiletries, things they needed. And every time they were told, the prison guard said to them, fine, just leave him here, I'm sorry you can't go in. They did that for 14 years before the authorities told them that the brother-in-law had been killed, that he was dead. And you just think about that. I mean, I've, I've worked in a lot of countries where terrible things happen and where prisoners die, where people disappear, where there's torture, terrible human rights abuse. But I had never come across somewhere where they actually kill people and didn't tell the relatives and kept the relatives in this in this false hope. And that seemed to me a particularly extraordinary kind of cruelty. And that, that stuck with me. It, it haunted me. It, it haunts me still.
0: Now, one of the advantages, I guess, in writing a book over doing a a news piece is that you really get the opportunity to go into the whole background and the history of the situation rather than just explaining what's happening immediately before our eyes. Now, I, I was really struck by the plate section in your book, seeing this, this very dapper 20-something man in, in military uniform, the Colonel Gaddafi of, of the 1960s when he first came to power. It's quite a sharp contrast with the, mm. the rather ramshackle, clownish, mad figure that, that we came to know in latter days.
1: Yeah, he was handsome, wasn't he? I mean, he was handsome and he was also... What I find extraordinary you look back over those photographs, and it, it is a, a unique um, archive, which we, we found for, for the book, my friends at Human Rights Watch uncovered this archive of photographs um, in the abandoned buildings after Gaddafi and his people fled Tripoli. And you see him through the years, but he's a shapeshifter. He wears all these different things. You, you see him in uniform. Uh, a naval uniform, an army uniform. Then you see him in the robes, which he you know, the Bedouin robes, which he became famous for wearing later on. And uh, you know, sometimes you see him in a suit, and you realise that he he's whoever you want him to be, he will be. And the the other thing I found very interesting was, um, for me, the, the most extraordinary thing about Libya was being with people who were telling their stories for the first time because in the repression under Gaddafi people couldn't talk and journalists were very restricted and so people were just full of wanting to tell me everything and there was one man I met in the in the market he makes the um the copper half moons that you put on the top of minarets of of mosques His story was extraordinary because he explained how he adored Gaddafi when he first came to power in 1969, that he saw this fantastic, sharp, young officer, and he was a big pan-Arabist like Nasser, who was, um, you know, president of Egypt next door. And he thought, this is fantastic. We're going to become a modern country, and it's so brilliant. And then, bit by bit, he became disillusioned, and he would go home from his work in the Medina And there would be a gibbet in the street and somebody hanging. And then one day, plainclothes men surrounded the medina and captured him. And it was the press gang. And he was taken into the military and he had to serve in in the military for 11 years. He was sent to Tajikistan, where it was minus five degrees. You can imagine for a Libyan, who's used to warm weather. You know, he was sent there for training. And then he ended up fighting the war in Chad. So through his story, I think you can see the disillusion with Gaddafi that many Libyans felt who had initially been very enthusiastic and thought that this was the man who would bring Libya into the modern world. I
0: mean, the the word that kept recurring to me was capriciousness. And I don't mean that at all in a light sense, but the the exercise of power was terrifying in its capriciousness, wasn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Gaddafi had absolute power but he had this strange thing that he pretended he had no power at all. So he would say, oh, well, the power is with the masses. He, he invented a, a word, jamahariria, which means state of the masses, which is what he said Libya was, as opposed to a republic or a kingdom or whatever. And he said, well, the masses are in control. And that was his revolutionary committees, who were basically the neighborhood thugs. And yeah, he, he could do whatever he wanted to do. And so he would, I mean, he had an appalling reputation with um, with women. He had um, these female guards who became very famous. But um, I spoke to um, a male guard who told me that um, many of them were used as mistresses, basically to, to sleep with him, that, that young women were constantly brought in. And I learned that young women in Tripoli were very scared of um, being brought to the the compound in case they, they caught um, Gaddafi's eye. That was a very terrifying thing to happen. And, you know, he capriciousness even, I mean, in Africa, a lot of, he has a mixed record in Africa, and many Africans actually think that he helped Africa. Um, and certainly there was an investment authority which put money in and so on. But mostly the way he helped was totally capricious. I I, I spoke to one young woman who worked in the protocol department of the foreign ministry, and she adored the guide. She always called him the guide. She loved him. And one of her examples of the wonderful things he'd done was that they had been in Mali and in West Africa, and um, she had been told to go to the market in Bamako and buy things to give to people. And I said, how much uh, money did he give you? And she said, a million dollars said a million dollars in cash she said yes a million dollars in cash I don't think it's possible to spend a million dollars in cash in the market in Bamako it's a pretty downtrodden place and she did say they did run out of things and they ended up just handing out money
0: and of course it was the discovery of oil which made that possible and also made possible things like the the grand projects that some of which were left half finished and also the funding of overseas terrorist organizations so that the oil was sort of critical really to all sorts of aspects of say, his regime
1: oh totally i mean i think if libya hadn't had oil i'm not sure that gaddafi would have lasted as long as he he did because he did to some extent buy off the population i mean it's one of those um, states where you, you know you don't pay tax to the government the government gives you money i mean his two big projects you could say um were terrorism and the great man-made river the great man-made river is an extraordinary project which has never been completed but whereby he, whereby he was trying to bring water from deep under the sahara up to the the cities which are on the coast and um i can't remember the most extraordinary uh, statistics for the size of the um of the pipes which were used i mean you could get three four five people standing on each other's shoulders in these uh, in these pipes they were so huge the project was so bonkers the technical specifications were so wild that western governments thought that it must be some elaborate thing for the hiding of weapons it wasn't it was just a large drain pipe but it was it was his obsession and the other thing he did was he founded what was called the mathaba the center which was a place where people who felt like overthrowing regimes he didn't like could get training that was very serious because people who trained there included Charles Taylor, who waged war in Liberia, which involved the killing of hundreds of thousands of people. Fode Sanko from Sierra Leone, who had a rebel group which became famous for the enslavement and rape of young girls, and the cutting off of people's limbs. And so I'm not saying that those people were trained in those methods. I don't think that they were. I think that they were probably trained in more um, classic guerrilla methods. But by fermenting these rebellions, Gaddafi let loose the most extraordinary and horrific forces of violence across West Africa. And that's quite apart from the other kinds of terrorism he was involved in in, you know, Lockerbie almost definitely, although it still isn't 100% confirmed. It is confirmed, of course, that um, he provided weapons for the IRA and um, for lots of of other groups in an almost arbitrary fashion.
0: And as you say in the book, what is unprecedented in his case is what you call this zigzag trajectory, Mm -hmm. where he goes from being an enemy to being a friend and then back to an enemy of, of the West.
1: That's right, because in the 80s, he was this mad dog of the Middle East, which is what Ronald Reagan called him. And that was because of the, the terrorism he sponsored. And that was why Reagan, with the assistance of Mrs. Thatcher, who was then Prime Minister, bombed his his compound, al Azizir, in Tripoli in 1986. But then over the years, he... I was going to say he mellowed. I'm not sure if that's quite right. But he began to realize that that being a pariah was not a good thing for sustaining power. And his his son, Saif al gaddafi very much wanted the country to come in from the, the cold. And so they started to make moves. And there were two things. One was they did eventually give up the weapons of mass destruction, which was a small nuclear program, which hadn't really got very far, and a program for chemical weapons, which had got further. But the more important aspect was... 9-11 happened and Gaddafi saw his moment and so he immediately because he he was sort of out of the terrorism business by then and he was very worried about islamists overthrowing his own regime and certainly the opposition to him had taken a religious turn they were islamists trying to overthrow him And so he said, aha, the people who are trying to destroy you, America, are the same as the people trying to destroy me, Gaddafi, in Libya. So we should work together. And so that began to happen. And Britain and America both cooperated a lot with Gaddafi in their campaigns against terrorism and against jihadis, which meant that Tony Blair ended up making friends with Colonel Gaddafi. It was... The most extraordinary thing because the human rights abuse in the country hadn't changed and it was for Gaddafi well I suppose for both a marriage of of convenience but Gaddafi made all he he could of it and you know the British government the American government well they supped with the devil and with a not very long spoon and then when the rebellion started in 2011 and at this point, Britain and America felt that Gaddafi was on the way out and, you know, that this was part of a wave sweeping the Middle East and they should be on the right side of history. Then suddenly, he's a mad dog of the Middle East again. So he's gone back to being public enemy, enemy number one.
0: It's very striking that Really, almost as that is happening, David Cameron is about to get on a plane with some British arms dealers. And, you know, what What a, what a graphic representation of how things had changed and how they can switch back again at a moment's notice.
1: Well, the British government has a complicated relationship with the Middle East, doesn't it? I mean, the Middle East is a, a place where Britain sells a lot of weapons, mainly to Gulf states. But they were beginning to sell rather a lot to Gaddafi as well, which, of course, suddenly became extremely embarrassing. And they were selling a lot to um, to the rulers of Bahrain. And that, I think, is where you see the complexity of British foreign policy, because they supported the rebellion in Libya and in Tunisia and in Egypt. But in Bahrain, which is run by a, a Sunni monarchy and is an anchor of the Gulf region including Qatar and most significantly Saudi Arabia there they had a rather different policy because while the Saudis were perfectly happy that Gaddafi should fall because he was an embarrassment and also he kept trying to assassinate Saudi leaders and that really doesn't go down terribly well so they they were only too happy for him to go but the idea of one of Theirs, the Gulf monarchies being overthrown, no, they weren't going to put up with that. And Britain's relationships with Saudi and those Gulf monarchies are very, very important, not just for the arms trade, but for banking and for all sorts of um, parts of the economy.
0: And there's the, the, the fear that, that that then opens the door to Iran, doesn't it, in, in Bahrain, if if there's a change of regime there and the whole complexion of the Middle East and the balance of power shifts.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. Because basically in Bahrain... There's a, a large number of Shi'as. It's the same sect of Islam as Iran, who um, are discriminated against, do not have equal rights, and um, feel very angry. And they were mainly the ones who are protesting against the, the Sunni government, Bahrain and the Gulf states. They see their main enemy as Iran. They see Iran as a much bigger enemy than Israel, and um, that is the fund. That's the pivot in the Middle East and um, yeah that's why they would not countenance that and also in Saudi Arabia in the east of Saudi Arabia there is a Shia minority and the east is where all the oil is so the Saudis absolutely terrified that um, the Shias in in Saudi would be contaminated by the revolutionary fever sweeping Bahrain so they put lid on that quickly as they could
0: Lindsay, I thought in addition to the way you sketched out the big historical picture, one of the other great attractions of the book for me was the personal stories that that come up and and that recur. And I I thought one of the most fascinating figures in the book was Sami al-Sadi. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about him and what his trajectory had been.
1: Yeah, I was sitting in the lobby of the Radisson Hotel in Tripoli, getting online and generally minding my own business. And uh, man comes up and says, hello, Lindsay. And I look up and I see this bearded chap in a long tunic. And I say, how do you know my name? And he said, oh, well, I lived in England, so, you know, I watched Channel 4 News. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, would you like to hear my story of how MI6 and the CIA participated in my extraordinary rendition from Hong Kong to Libya? I said, you know what? I think I might. Because I'm writing a book and that was how I got to meet Samuel al-Sadi who is a fascinating character who I can't quite make my mind up what I think about him. I mean basically he like many others was born into a family which hated Gaddafi, very good reasons. He became very religious which happened to many people in Libya because there was no other outlet for opposition. There's no political opposition allowed so people just go to the mosque a lot. He went to fight in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen when they were fighting to overthrow the Russians so of course then the Americans the British and so on were all with it they were supporting them but he became extremely hardline religious at that that time and you know believing that there there should be a, a caliphate across the whole um, you know as many countries of the world as possible and viewing the role of of women in a very constricted way and believing in jihad, which means fighting for Islamic rule and violence being the only way and not countenancing any discussion or any compromise or any political deals. So he spent that time in in Afghanistan anyway, then he went to various other places, including England. And then he was back in Afghanistan again, when 9-11 happened. And he knew Osama bin Laden quite well. And he says, and I've had it confirmed by other people as well, that he told bin Laden that it was not a good idea to attack America. He didn't know what bin Laden was planning to do, but he knew he was going to do something. He said, don't do it. It'll just cause trouble for us. And he also knew Mullah Omar, who was the head of the Taliban very well. And he says that Mullah Omar didn't want bin Laden to go ahead with these attacks on the, on the West either. Anyway, bin Laden did. And... Um, Sammy was then on the run because he knew that the Americans would come for him so he had this extraordinary trip around he went to with his family by the way a very long-suffering wife and children to Iran to Malaysia to Hong Kong and then he went to China and then he was flying back from China the mainland China to Hong Kong and he got picked up by the police because he was traveling on fake passports and they realized that he wasn't who he said he was and then they did inquiries and he was, um, they realised who he was, that he was wanted by, not only by Gaddafi, but the West were very interested in him because he had been so close to Bin Laden. So in that policy of what we called extraordinary rendition, which is basically kidnap, he was kidnapped, bundled on a plane and sent back to Libya with the connivance of the CIA and MI6 and we have all the documents which prove this because those documents were found in the abandoned government buildings in Tripoli after Gaddafi fell so we have it all there chapter and verse taken back to to Libya in prison tortured but then i mean this is a long story but it is extraordinary Saif al-Islam the son of Gaddafi decided that he needed to do something about the jihadis who were in prison because there were many of them in prison and started a de-radicalization process which involved spending a lot of time talking with these guys, Sammy, and with the, his uh, his colleagues from what was called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and um, a former member of that group called noman Bernatman who now lives in London was very instrumental in this, somebody who had turned his back on jihad and they spent oh more than a year just going through their philosophy, their thoughts and eventually These guys turned against jihad. In other words, they turned against violence. Doesn't mean they're no longer Islamists. Doesn't mean they they no longer want an Islamic state. They do. But they had changed their thinking on the use of violence. And uh, they were were released. And so Sami and his friends are critical when it comes to what's going to happen next in Libya. Because if they stick with what we would call a moderate kind of Islam former political party and so on, I think that they will become quite influential. But they could turn much more extremist. And when I tried to quiz Sami on that, I had a lot of problems getting to the bottom of what he really felt. You know, I would say, well, what do you think about women wearing the burqa? And he would say, Afghanistan is different from Libya. And I'm saying, yeah, but, you know, what's your opinion on it? And he won't really say I mean, the, the burqa is not traditional in Libya in any way, and I have to say that his daughter and his wife don't don't wear it at all. They just wear a normal headscarf. But I was left with a, a question mark about Sami.
0: And, and that example of the burqa is kind of emblematic, isn't it, of the difficulty of, of being precise about what, what people's ambitions, what people's vision for the new Libya will be. There's much, you say, at the end that is untested about that inevitably.
1: Well, the thing is, it's year zero. Everything's been overthrown. One of the things about Gaddafi's rule is that there was no state. There were no systems. There were no institutions. There was nothing. And so in some ways, that's good, because it means you can build up good institutions starting from scratch, unlike in Egypt, where the institutions are all corrupt and and so on. But it also means that it's a blank canvas, and everybody wants to paint their own picture on it. And the picture that somebody like Sammy wants to paint is very different from the picture, say, of Mervat, who's another of the people in the book, who's a, a woman. She's a she's a trained dentist. She has two kids. She's very modern. You know, she thinks that women should take a big part in the revolution, and she, you know, took risks herself in the civil disobedience campaign, and so. Their visions for Libya are very different. And what we're seeing at the moment is really a clash of that because the interim government is very weak. People have got used to protesting and think it's rather good fun. So every time you want something or you're against something, you gather a 100 of your friends or your relatives and off you go and have a protest, which is fine, but that's not actually building things and bringing democracy. But there's never been democracy in Libya. So I'm not quite sure why we would think that they would be able to do democracy from one day to the next. And I think there was another young woman I met, and she said to me, you know, one of the problems that we have is we all have a little Gaddafi in our heads. And I think that that's that's a good way of, of putting it. You know, old habits die hard. And 42 years of a really brutal dictatorship. It's very difficult to see a path forward that isn't you know full of rocks on the road
0: you mentioned marvat and she was involved in the um the free generation movement which i find a very interesting corrective to the idea that it was only about young men with kalashnikovs in the back of pickup trucks can you say a bit about what the free generation movement was doing meanwhile
1: yeah the the free generation movement were amazing they were Basically, it was a group of friends and relatives, all in their 20s, 30s, early 40s. The people I got to know were Nizar, who actually is an oral surgeon in Cardiff, um, and Mervat, his sister. Niz saw on February 22nd a speech that Saif al-Islam Gaddafi gave. This was the beginning of the revolution where Saif basically came out and wagged his finger at the Libyan people and said, you know, don't do this, don't you dare do this. Um, you can't overthrow my father. And um, Niz felt so angry, he just went upstairs, packed his bag, went to Gatwick, got on a plane, landed in Tripoli, and found himself in the middle of demonstrations and in which he participated. Um, Mervat didn't participate initially in demonstrations, partly because her husband sort of felt, oh, you know, this is you know, it's dangerous and you shouldn't go and you've got two small kids and so on. But, all right. But then those demonstrations were quashed and none of these this group of people wanted to fight. They said, we can't do nothing, we've got to do something. And so they started this civil disobedience. So some of it was setting off balloons in the revolutionary colours and Chinese lanterns. Another one was the putting out the the rubbish which had the recording of the revolutionary anthem singing. Um, which Mervat filmed, which took a lot of nerve, I have to tell you, because if she had been caught, that would have been it. Another one they did was, there's these big posters of Gaddafi everywhere in Tripoli, and um, Niz and his cousin climbed up the back, um, with. they'd made a cage out of co- wire coat hangers, and inside they'd put a fuse which was made of string, which was covered in a paste which they'd made of squ- Um, ground up matchstick heads it's like a sort of blue peter experiment it's like do not do this at home but they they had done this and they hung it on the back of the poster and set it alight and then ran off so it meant that Gaddafi's face began to burn a flame crept down the poster all the way down his hat and his nose and so suddenly he was on fire and people were looking and going, oh my God, you know, because nobody would dare do that. So these kind of stunts, which took a lot of nerve, they were they were extraordinary and they, they were humorous, but they were very brave.
0: At one point in the book, a Joan Didion quote comes into your mind. You say, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And, and your book really brings home the importance of those stories, but also the contested nature of them. And I was struck that the, the international community really became engaged when a particular woman's story, a rape victim, be- achieved international prominence. I just wondered, in conclusion, if you could say whether you feel Libya's story is now so polyphonic and so contested that, that there, there is not there is, there is not yet a single narrative that w- will enable the country to, to bring itself together and go forward.
1: There isn't a single narrative, and I don't think that there, there ever is. But I don't have any doubt that the majority of Libyans were happy to see Gaddafi go. Of course, there were some who weren't, who benefited from his rule. And of course, you've got, you knew there's a certain amount of, of chaos at the moment. And so some people may get some nostalgia for, for an old order, which at least was predictable. But I think, I mean, one of the great joys of, of writing this book was this moment you get this moment after a revolution or we had it in Iraq as well when Saddam Hussein fell when people are able to tell their stories for the first time and that's what I think this book is really about it's about people telling the stories of their lives which they've never been able to tell before and you know as feminists we always used to have that uh, that slogan the the personal is political What I feel in this book is it's the other way around. The political is personal. It's about how people's personal lives were changed, ruined, derailed by Gaddafi. And now everybody is trying to get back on track in a country which has no, no framework. And so that's very difficult. So you have a lot of different narratives, and I think you're going to get More and more different narratives. Everybody has their own individual story, and everybody has their own vision of how they want Libya to be. But my hope would be that because Libyans is a rich country, it has because of the oil, it has a small population, only six million people. It's a well-educated country. I mean, this is a country which is very plugged into the outside world. I mean, this is the country where one of the graffiti in Benghazi was. Gaddafi, you are the weakest link, goodbye. So you can see how how connected they are to to the outside world. So they have every chance of creating a narrative, having a history that they can agree on and, and moving forward with it. But, you know, human beings are fallible creatures and there's a lot of violence, latent and not so latent, and the militias don't want to give their weapons up and the bureaucrats are weak and indecisive so you know they also have have a lot of difficulties but i think that one of the good things about the narrative issue is that almost instantly things are being memorialized there are already two museums of the revolution in misrata which i found just extraordinary including one where i rather liked it because they had models of the, the street was just destroyed tripoli street they had these models like doll's houses and there was one thing where you could, you could press a button and smoke came out as if it had just been shelled all over again. And so, you know, people feel that the revolution was the moment of their lives, the most important moment of their lives, and they all came together. Now the issue is whether they can stay together and create a, a Libya which is you know, prosperous and peaceful.
0: Lindsay Hilsom. Sandstorm. Libya in the Time of Revolution, is out on the 5th of April in hardback. For more information, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.